Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. Today is World AIDS Day, and I am absolutely delighted to be in conversation with one of my favorite people, Judy Nokwedi, in her capacity as chair of the AIDS Consortium. And this is a human rights organization that looks at promoting a non-discriminatory response to the HIV AIDS epidemic. There's so many conversations to be had around the war against AIDS that is ongoing, but I wanted to talk about two themes. The first is stigma, and the second is specifically our country, South Africa. How are we getting on in terms of managing to end HIV AIDS by 2030 or not? And what are the stumbling blocks to that objective? Judy, you've written two pieces that I've seen in the last couple of days speaking into both of those themes. And of course, you are enormously experienced as someone who's worked in this area for many, many, many years. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people zone, their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Thank you so much for making time for me in your busy schedule. And welcome to Eusebius on Times Live. Uh, good morning, Eusebius. It's great to be talking to you, but of course, it's tragic to be talking about the issue of HIV and AIDS um, after decades, after decades of decimation, disaster and discrimination. But, um, you know, I am willing and able and humbly will share my journey with HIV that started in 1984. Mm. Well, let's start there with the deeply personal. And what is really interesting for me is how you tell us that even though we'd like to now label living with HIV no different to being a chronic condition like having hypertension, for example, that while that tag is well meant to try and help destigmatization, that the reality is slightly different. Uh, speak to me about your personal experience and then also in terms of the patterns of experience of persons living with HIV and affected by HIV and AIDS, whether it is true that we can just think of living with HIV as having a chronic condition. I completely disagree with anyone who says to me, uh, it's, it's like living with any condition. And I'll take you back to my journey um, in 1984, when I buried two of my closest friends, Eben Fenter and Nicholas van Skalkveig. And I'd just like to, for a moment, pause in their memory and in mem memory of the millions of people across the world that have died from, from HIV. They died miserably. They died at the height of of the, the wave of gay 
bashing, gay, uh, anything that looked, smelt, or, or, or spoke of gay was meant to be eradicated from the planet. And I was living in Sydney at the time, and of course, it hit Sydney, Sydney's gay community in a in a. I, I can't even begin to explain how. And people were then even taking battery acid, anything that would give them an extra day with their loved ones. And, and, and that really was the beginning of my journey because they were two South African gay men who left this country because of being Afrikaners, being gay, being liberal, being progressive. They sought a life, a better life in another part of the world. And of course, AIDS came and just took their lives away. And it was at that stage when they said they need a straight woman. Um, I was a black straight woman, which added another dimension to the fight against HIV in Australia and in Southeast Asia. But they wanted to begin to have people identifying with them and fighting with them and for them. And we then very early on realized that it had to be a collective fight. And as a woman who was quite um, active in activism circles, being a South African in Australia at that time, working in the ANC office, they felt I would be able to amplify the voices and have people empathize with them and treat them as a brother, as a son, as a father, as a neighbor, as a cousin. Mm. And, and that's how my journey started. And I buried literally a friend a day at the height of the AIDS when AIDS first hit. And I just want to say that around the 6th of January this year, I buried a friend of mine from COVID. And when we were at the cemetery and all those empty graves were ready to bury people who were dying from COVID, I actually collapsed. I had an internal, external implosion because it reminded me of the 30 odd years that we were fighting for HIV, for people to live, to live with dignity. And those graves just took me back to my darkest moments in history. What I found interesting about your meditation on stigma and the danger of from good intentions, labeling living with HIV as just another chronic condition, is that it was a rude awakening for me because so many folks in the public health sector who desperately want us to become an HIV-free generation almost preemptively talk about the good news as if we are there yet and talk about the strides that have been made in terms of, for example, our massive antiretroviral program that we have now compared to where we were at in the darkest days of AIDS denialism under the Mbeki regime. But your article, the one on stigma, makes me believe, and I want you to take off from here, that as much as there's a lot to be grateful for in terms of medicine, in terms of state policy, that at the deeply interpersonal, bottom-up, community-level, workplace experiences, experiences with potential loved ones, romantic relationships, that stigma continues. What is stigma? What is the level of it for persons living with HIV? And what drives it still? Sure. So the big, big difference as to why 
HIV is not like um, diabetes or high blood pressure, where it's all fun uh, to take your BP with these fancy devices and families. My dad was a diabetic. We took turns to inject him with insulin, pretending Mm. to be little doctors and nurses. (laughs) The problem is that HIV travels with a lot of excess baggage, guilt, and shame in the infected coupled with judgment and ridicule from the very community that is meant to protect you. And um, even in my own family, whom I think uh, should be progressive, we never openly discuss HIV. Everybody assumes that nobody has HIV. And so you just live with this veneer. And because I've worked in HIV and, 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 and AIDS for such a long time, my extended family will always say, oh, is that another one of your HIV positive friends? But they say it with such derision and, and um, I can't even find the words to describe, you know, that that energy that emanates from their bodies and from their mouths when they mouth those words as if this person shouldn't be a in my space nor in their space and and that's the big difference that is what stigma is stigma is where you are people would prefer you to be locked away and that you must disappear. I actually didn't look up the Greek or Latin origin of the word um, Eusebius, but maybe you can help me with it. I'm not sure, but I think your, your, your description of it is chilling in terms of the reality of living with HIV. The second, the, I'll, I'll take the third of the three questions I've asked you for us to unpack. And as you were speaking, our mutual friend and your both your friend and your, your colleague in the AIDS Consortium work that you do, Edwin Cameron, I wonder whether his basic posit, positing of what drives stigma in his wonderful memoir, or memoir of disclosure, a witness to AIDS, is still the correct one after all these years, that it is primarily the mode of transmission, the dominant mode of transmission being sexual intercourse that is responsible for this and that people have really conservative sexual mores, even when we know that secretly they may be romping it up in the bedroom in an orgy of fun, but pretending to be these conservative folk that have got very conservative, um, invariably religious-inspired ideas about sex, what kind of sexual choices we should make. Do you think that that is what explains the stigma and the attitudes that if someone has HIV AIDS, or they were to disclose that they have HIV rather, um, that part of what that says is, I had sex. And the responses, the derision that you're talking about, piggybacks on really conservative sexual mores. Eusebius, uh, Edwin is is absolutely correct. But of course, we and we can deal with this um, later, that sex is the origin of the disease. And then, of course, the route of transmission varies depending on uh, when you're looking at at different communities, whether it's mother to child transmission, whether it is rape, but even rapey sex, whether it's violence, violence, sexual violence. So there are two elements, but the origin, the genesis is because you have had sex. Mm. I would add another dimension to his posit, and that is 
Obviously, if you're black, you are promiscuous. And if you're black, your sexual mores has another dimension. And therefore, and this is what South Africa was burdened with and Africa was burdened with. It was blackness and being black and racism and sexuality. So if you're black and you are HIV positive, if you are black and you come from the LGBTQI plus community, then, of course, you are hit with a myriad of discriminatory filters and levers, because let's face it, most people would want blackness to disappear. So you, you have you have an added a dichotomy around being black and being HIV, because let's face it, you know, the average perception is that we worse than rabbits and monkeys when it comes to sex. And we are just barbaric, uh, primitive, nihilistic when it comes to sex. And, and, and so even as a woman, when you, um, when you present, and I remember at the, at the World Cup when we were hosting and the Mexicans were wonderful, and someone had said to me at a party, a bunch of Mexican men, oh, we were told that when we come to South Africa, we shouldn't have sex with black women. All the black women here, do you have HIV? This was at the World Club, at the World Cup at a party, a party of decent you know, yeah. I think decency yeah. is another word. De- decent people, I just don't have space for them. Mm-hmm. And I had said, so are you an American janitor or a drug dealer? But quite frankly, I'm going to have all of you removed from this party. Mm-hmm. So th- that is the other element around HIV. And of course, we are a black country. So HIV equals black. And then Edwin talks very eloquently around that access to healthcare, access to drugs, is the other uh, the, the 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 golden wand and the golden thread, yeah. and he yeah. can live today with a viral load that is suppressed only because Simon, as you remember, there were the two men that came out, Simon from Soweto, and 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 Edwin and Simon's dead, and Edwin's alive, and we always use that as an example of here access to healthcare. Equitable healthcare is the difference. And when you're an educated white man um, mm. or an educated yeah. white woman, okay, let's put the gay issue aside, then it's a very much, it's like, ah, shame, as opposed to you disgusting piece of whatever, Absolutely. whatever. Before we talk about the South African overall stats and where we are at and what the future portends, one last question about stigma. Is there any good research around the volume of stigma, even if it's qualitative? Do we understand whether stigma is going down over time or whether the picture stays the same? What do we know? I don't have a body of current research that I can refer to. And as you would know, and people who know me, I'm very evidence-based when it comes to um, informing decisions. But at the same time, I can only talk about my 25 young people. And before we end, I would like to put up a copy of the book because I titled the book after the Nina Simone song, because I raised my son every day in the car. We would play Young, Gifted and Black as he entered the white world of, of education. Mm. And I use Young, Gifted and Positive. And those 25 stories, whether you've got 250,000 
stories or research based on 2.5 million. The 25 stories give you, gives expression to how young people live today with HIV and that the stigma has not gone away. And in some instances, it has become worse. It has become worse because people want to wish it away. They want to wish HIV away. The health services, the ball has been dropped around adolescent-friendly healthcare services. And if you're lucky enough to be a member of the AIDS consortium as a young person, or you at, of course, his haven, where we do a lot of work with young people there and other projects around the country, those 25 stories we published it for 25 years of democracy. We launched it in the 26th year. And you have a face, a voice of some of the stories. And the reason young people didn't want their faces in the book was because they were not prepared for the community response, the church response, the family response. We had one young girl, a fantastic young girl, Tabeka, and she just said, that she she had it. She wanted to own her status and she didn't care what people were going to do to her. Now, she went to a great school, Jeppy Girls, and the school rallied behind her. Mm. But your average school does not rally behind you no. nor support you. In fact, life will become so difficult for you that you A, commit suicide, B, you run away, C, you come to a big city so that you can live in an anonymous fashion. Mm. And, and so for me, my 25 stories of young South Africans from Delft to um, in Kandla, they came from all over the country and they tell you the horrors of how they live with HIV. And it is it is NGO support, the few NGOs that still exist mm. that has been able to give them a lifeline mm. to be able to live and to come out and be proud and to show up and say, I am HIV positive and I'm living my best life. And whatever you think of me, that's your business. And they've used it to educate people. So uh, the research, we don't do enough prevention anymore. Mm. And if you just look at the stats around teenage pregnancy, then you know that young people are having unprotected sex. And, um, you know, I it, there was a, a, a joke doing the rounds in my my pods um, and you're saying like, no, we used a condom. And you said you used we didn't use a condom because we had HIV negative results. And they said, but what about STIs? Are you crazy? How can you people still be having unprotected sex? Because there are issues around uh, other diseases that can be transmitted, you know, gonorrhea, syphilis, which is also devastating. So my answer, you know, I, I'm, I'm convoluted. I know I suffer from that problem is <laughs> that uh, in many, many cases, stigma has gone away, has not gone away. And we still see corrective rape because when you are seen to be lesbian or gay, one of our young boys in the book, he was perceived to be gay. He was brutally sodomized and he um, contracted HIV as a young as a young a boy growing up in the Cape Flats. And it was because they had labeled him where, where he came from. Uh, allow me to keep that uh, private because his face is not in the book um, in a colored community on the Cape Flat, mm. Flats. And I think one of the rapists, uh, that is how he contracted his HIV. So we're not talking 20 years ago. We're not talking 30 years ago. We're yeah. talking 
less than 14 months ago. I think that's unfortunately a brutal truth that we need to reckon with so that we don't become complacent about the challenge, which segues nicely to the last theme that I wanted to explore. Um, Judy writes today, despite the gains we've made in the 17 years since we began our national antiretroviral treatment program, the HIV pandemic rages on several steps ahead of us. Today, one in five of the world's 37.7 million HIV-infected people lives in South Africa. 240,000 of 1.5 million global new HIV infections in 2020 were recorded in South Africa. Of the 680,000 recorded global AIDS-related deaths in 2020, 126,000 AIDS and TB-related mortalities occurred right here in South Africa. And, which she alluded to already in terms of the burden that girls and women bear, 2,000 girls and women aged 15 to 34 are infected with HIV each week in South Africa. You then ask a question that I think is very pertinent. HIV may be a global war, but with South Africa currently shouldering the heaviest HIV burden in the world, this country needs to be at the epicenter of the command center. So if South Africa fails to eradicate the HIV threat to human health, Africa and the rest of the world will fail too. This grim reality begs the question, why are we the country with the most extensive ART program in the world not winning? What is the answer? The answer is when ART or when, when, when therapies and treatment was, uh, when the world hailed it as the magic pill and the panacea, we didn't deal with the issue of stigma, discrimina- discrimination and prejudice. And, and therefore, uh, that was number one. Number two, our prevention efforts have also uh, not been supported. We as the AIDS Consortium, we struggle all the time to raise money. In fact, we've not been able to raise money. Uh, positive. Uh, uh, Prudence, who died, Uh, everybody in the AIDS world will know about Prudence. Her organization went under. There was no funding to do continue the work that Mm. they did. And and so And is that mostly is that because the state became what too relaxed and lackadaisical about the degree of resources that need to be made available and properly channeled to help civil society organizations like the ones you've mentioned that have helped children like the ones on the Cape Flats. Is that where the, where the gap is? is? Do we have a state that appreciates that there's more to the war than the availability of ARTs at um, public health facilities? We, we, we have structures um, in the country, SANAC in the main, that is the, the conduit for funding of NGOs and CBOs. So number one, civil society is not what it used to be, which is part of the reason why we're not winning our vaccination uh, war at the moment around COVID, because you don't have structures in communities anymore that like what we used to do in in the AIDS consortium, we would hold uh, weekly meetings, we would call them boas where people could come and engage. 
the lack of social cohesion. I don't have to expand on that. We saw eight days of July give, give rise to that. So number one, civil society has collapsed. Number two, we do not have a government that will um, accept the fact that they have to pump money into communities. If you look at the failure of municipalities to deliver services, that tells you the picture. If we can't fix local government then, then communities are not winning the war. So we have not been able to, to, to raise funding. And of course, is Haven uh, that I also chair because it's all one of the same, you know, it's the same universe, the same sets of issues, cannot get funding. Government doesn't support the model of keeping mothers and children together. You've got to separate mothers, put the children elsewhere uh, as if we live in a world where fa families are functional. Um, you know, this idea... Uh, that we have moms and dads, happy little little two two parents um, and and three children and a dog. So th there's that. Then of course the global community, which continues to be a part of the battle in the NGO world, is they will determine the agenda for funding. Mm -hmm. And we lost some of our funding as the AIDS consortium because they only wanted to fund many of the global groups wanted to fund men who have sex with men sex worker organizations and and what they call vulnerable groups like orphans, etc. And our view there was that the reason men move from rural communities to the cities, it's because they feel safer. Mm. So if you only want to treat men in the city, men in cities, not even in townships, men in cities, in urban areas, yeah. or injecting drug users. Sorry, that was the other, that is what they call vulnerable communities. People come to the cities because in a village, everybody knows each other. And our approach as the AIDS consortium is we are community-based. We work in the community. We work in the villages, in informal settlements, so that that family can embrace and assist Absolutely. those who are different and those, and I mean, I don't even, you know, we're not going to have the debate, but let's for a moment say that communities will perceive LGBTQI plus communities as different. Mm. So how do you harmonize and get communities to live where we live harmoniously and allow people expression to be who they are. Absolutely. And if there is alcoholism, if there is drug addiction, let's deal with it as a family disease. And when we fix where you live in your village or in your township, mm. then we don't see my tragic experience with two little boys uh, sitting in Bree Street sharing needles. And they also mm. came from the Cape Flats. You don't need them to leave the Cape Flats to share needles and inject themselves with drugs. Exactly. We need them yeah. in the communities, in mm. clinics, with their families. So that is another reason why we've not been able to get the funding for the kind of work that we want to do. And I said, as the chair, supported by the board, that we need to remain true to what we're doing. Mm. And if we can't get the funding, we will find a way. And we have found a way to continue to do yeah. the work. 
So those are the two realities that we deal with. And then, of course, your PEPFAs of this world, uh, the funding, it's complicated, it's complex. And, and SANEC is caught up with all of that. And then, of course, you have NGO careerists, celebrity NGOs uh, that use, you know, uh, an issue like GBV or an issue like HIV to pander to their own egos and the people that really should be getting the support, you know, uh, be it Tubeka Dlamini or Ayanda Satole, who is just a girl from a township that doesn't have all the paraphernalia, etc., but is deeply hurt and living with pain, that young girl or that young boy will not get the support. Judy, we're running out of time, but I want to ask two questions. I'll give you one minute each for each of these two questions. And that's unfair because they deserve more time, but we can explore them again in future because this is a war that continues beyond World AIDS Day. But the second last question I have for you, if one of my listeners don't know their status, but they are scared of going for a test or testing themselves with one of those home kits, what do you say to them? I would say make sure that you have spoken to one of your best friends, someone that has your back. Preferably take that person with you because you are not guaranteed that the service provider is going to be empathetic and sympathetic. So take someone literally that can hold you, that can contain you, and then be prepared for whatever the outcome is. And also know that knowing your status gives you the strength and the courage to make the changes in your life that you may need to make so that you can live forever. You'll probably be killed by something else. Uh, That is what I would say. Mm -hmm. But I would recommend and urge that you do not do these things alone Mm -hmm. because we do know whether it's HIV, whether it's cancer, whether it's gender-based violence, when you have someone that can care for you and hold you, when you're in pain and when you enjoy, you get the resilience. You are able to dig deep and develop your resilience Absolutely. to face, as one of my young people say, the dark moments when you are alone mm. and your friends are few. Lastly, are you hopeful? Yes, I am, because I do believe as the species we are built to overcome. And and I started off by saying I live with positive anticipation because in in times of prolonged uncertainty, ambiguous loss, the inability to, to share in our grief and share in our joy where trauma is collective, um, I wake up and I say positive with the anticipation that today will be a better day. And for the young people, my own sons, my children in my universe, I have to live knowing that every fight, if you're prepared to fight, you will win. Judy, have a day as beautiful as you are and that hopefully will be as fit as that beautiful run you had this morning before our talk. (laughs) Thanks so much for making time for me. Thank you, Eusebius, for allowing on behalf of the AIDS Consortium for us to keep the word out there that we need to eradicate stigma. Absolutely. Not just for HIV, but for prosperity and progress of the country.